Brent, I want to thank you and the singing servants for uh, just taking us through all those songs. There were so many good songs, old and new, and they were, they were enriching. And um, I, um, Lord, we come before thee now. Oh, that's a moving song. And, and I'm going to tell you this, I, gotta, I, I still will get cracked up during a few songs, and that's not your fault. You can't do anything about it. Nobody can do anything about it. I think there's some... Um, photo evidence that's been released on the web of John Langford and I uh, cutting up during the Praise and Harmony workshop. I never claimed to be a perfect person. And um, the, um, the, 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 the joke there was that, uh, and, and you did it, you did uh, uh, Lord We Come Before Thee Now, uh, because every time we sang that, since I first heard that song, that line where it says, uh, Oh, do not my suit disdain. I've always thought, but I just got it dry cleaned, you know, and it, what's wrong with my suit? So, it wasn't particularly funny, but it is to me. You have to think about these things when you come to worship. Solomon did, and what I want to um, uh, point out to you this morning does, you got a little preview of 1 Kings there, but had to back up. When First so, Kings 8 is the story of Solomon dedicating the temple the people of israel had worshiped around a tabernacle which is really a tent it's a it's a portable worship booth but now they've established themselves they're in the land they've got a kingdom they've got a political empire and they have a capital city jerusalem the king has a throne there And if the king has a throne there, then God ought to be represented there. So Solomon builds this temple that was his father's dream to build. And then Solomon dedicates this temple. And what a humble thing for him to ask God to move into the house that he has built for the creator of the universe. It's as if Solomon is saying, you know, we're going to build a little... um, a little apartment room off here in the backyard for you, God, and, and, and you can move in, and, and, and we'll come to visit you, and we'll come to see you. And I think during the prayer, Solomon is caught up in the audacity of that. It was his prayer then that after all of this work, and as impressive as this temple was, Solomon's prayer, and really it's a prayer as in a hope, a request, a humble petition. It was that perhaps God would sign off on this, that he would put his name on this this house in Jerusalem, that it would maybe be an embassy from heaven, that it would represent the affairs of heaven right there in Jerusalem for all of the earth a local office where the lord of the heavens and the earth would do his business related to the peoples of earth solomon asked god to be merciful in the prayer let the temple serve as a kind of local address for god that when when he's in town and they expected him to always be in town That the people of Israel could go there and they could expect divine justice and they could expect protection. It'd be a place where God would respond to matters of economics and matters of health. Solomon asked God to sign off on the finished temple. He says, will you 
Will you put your name on it? Let it be a regional branch of the heavenly home office. And let the forgiveness of our sins be assured there. And Solomon's prayer is not just for the chosen of Israel. He doesn't limit it just to them. There's a point in the prayer where he casts his vision outward. He says, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name, Lord, and of your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And and so when they come and pray towards this temple, then from heaven, your dwelling place, will you hear them. Do you see that in the prayer, Solomon acknowledges that God doesn't live in the temple. That God dwells in heaven. But the temple will even be a, um, a kind of a, a visitation place, an embassy really, where people from other nations will come because they've heard of this creator God. They've heard of his deeds. Solomon expects that the word of God's mighty deeds will go out into all the earth. And so about a thousand years after Solomon dedicates this and asks the God and asks God to mercifully put his name meaning sign off approve of this temple there's a second temple that's built on the same site a thousand years later it's the time of Jesus Christ and Jesus affirms this same vision of the temple We think of the story and we remember that Jesus shows up. He makes a a whip, a cat of nine tails. And he goes in and he starts wailing on people. Now, first of all, there's no evidence that he's beating people up. Okay, Uh, There's better ways to do that than with a little whip. He's probably herding the cattle out of there, the sheep, the farm animals. And there's... There's some crooked practices going on there with the way that they're selling livestock to be used for sacrifices. And Jesus says this is not the point of God mercifully putting his name on this temple place. And so he says to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah. And he says, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now he's quoting Jeremiah. But you can see in Jesus' word and in his actions that he believes that that this location on earth where God has mercifully signed off and put his name on it, that it is important. And it doesn't just need to represent a religious institutional process. But it's really a place where salvation is in focus and now here we are we ourselves are the temple of god there's a wall there are ruins in jerusalem where solomon dedicated that temple but you and i according to paul in first corinthians 3 we're the temple of god that same temple of god is right here and he says the holy spirit dwells within you God didn't dwell in the stone uh, and brick and wood of the temple in Jerusalem. He put his name on it. But his Holy Spirit does dwell in this temple built with living stones. 
For the next five Sundays, as this temple assembles here in this place, this is going to be a place of prayer for all nations. Yes, certain nations will be represented. But we're going to be praying for all nations because we, as you'll learn in these stories, and if you'll read those cards, the connections that we have with these mission points, if we want to call them that, I always think in some way they can call us a mission point because we're all cooperative. There is no hierarchy. We're cooperative in the work of God to this world. Each week, new flags representing nations where we partner with God's people will be brought in. This week, we begin with Bulgaria and the United States. The flag of the United States is here, not only because this is where we live, but this year we're adding support for a youth minister in New England. And the connections that we have with New England, they're very real. People like Russ and Jean McConnell and their family have been doing evangelism in New England for generations. And, And both of these works, Bulgaria and New England, remind me That the work of God is often generational. King David does not have God's permission to build the temple. But his son Solomon does. God has a generational view. Russ was just telling me before we began that he knows this young man who wants to be a youth minister. There's a connection there. And and, and now... Russ's generation reaches out to this youth minister's generation. Who will he reach out to? He'll reach out to young people. And who knows where that will go? Right here in this city, in this neighborhood, we have a chance to reach out to international students. And that can be generational. Some of the ones that we're reaching out to here are connected with people who have been in this nation for two and even three, possibly even four generations. We are connected to the rest of the world. We are connected to all nations, so it's fitting that we pray. The work that uh, Gina Belot wants to do in Bulgaria represents generations on so many levels. Gina grew up here. She is of a second generation in a family that has worked here. She's been blessed here because of that. Bulgaria is a generational mission work. Christo and Banya want someone from a younger generation to help them so that they can reach a younger generation. And Gina's going to work to reach a younger generation over there. Rick O'Dell organizes these mission teams to go to Bulgaria. He is working with a younger generation who then are working with a younger generation over there. And some of those ones that we started working with years ago are now coming of age. And they are adults. And you know, seeds have been planted there that it may take quite a while to to grow. I think sometimes we think that all of evangelism is, um, you know, 
It's sort of like planting grass seed or something. You plant it, and before you know it, you know, or actually, I think we kind of think it ought to be like a chia pet, you know. You take the little seeds, wipe it on the whatever the little, um, little sheep is or whatever, and guess what? In a few days, poof, it sprouts. And we think evangelism ought to be like that. And if it's not like that, then what are we doing wrong? Sometimes evangelism is that quick, but sometimes it's like the olive tree. You plant it but your children's generation will harvest it. For we assume that the United States is Jerusalem and that this nation, represented by this flag, is the holy city that has to reach out to foreigners or you know, even those godless people up above the Mason-Dixon line. That's a joke on us, not them. We need to remember that Solomon's prayer of dedication in Jerusalem was humble. And you can just imagine that as he's going through the prayer, he has to ask himself, do we seriously think, I mean, this is a wise man, do we seriously think that God, that we're going to, confine him and stuff him into this little box because no matter how large the temple is that's all it is to him is a box he acknowledges that god cannot be contained in an earthly dwelling place he says but will god really dwell on earth i mean if you notice it right there in the prayer he says wait a second we're asking god to but can he no but he continues with the prayer because just like him we ought to acknowledge that no single nation No single state, no single region can declare that it is especially in some way God's country. Now we can say that a place is blessed by God because God's the creator and he blesses all of it. But for any group to act as if, now we've got God and we'll take it to everyone else who doesn't. That's an arrogance that even Solomon would not go to. Well, that's great, but why isn't, that, why isn't that just my opinion? Because that's Scripture. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 10. That's Psalm 24. All of the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. That's the little clause, the, the, the possession clause right there. God says, um, yep, all belongs to me. It's all mine. I made it including the United States of America. Remember that Solomon's prayer was directed to a God who hears prayers in heaven. And that ought to remind us that God's mission cannot be headquartered here in this nation. The mission of God comes from heaven to the earth, including the United States of America. And if we've ever doubted that our nation is not as much of a mission field as any other nation on earth. If we've ever doubted that even our own region is not as much of a mission field as any other nation on earth, then I would say that this year, especially this year in politics, has been a sober reminder that we need God to reach out to us too. Wouldn't you agree? Arguments are made. I've heard arguments made that Well, God uses corrupt rulers to accomplish His purposes. So yeah, even if somebody's not perfect, God is still picking them. There may be some truth to that. 
It's also true that too many people bend their faith and bend their allegiances around their political preferences. You cannot conform your faith to your own preferences. When we are asked to give our all and surrender our lives to Christ, we don't get to hold on to our preferences and have Him bow down to that. We must surrender all. If God has anything at all to do with the politics of this year, and I can't say, that's for Him to say, but if He has anything at all to do with it, perhaps it's a reminder to all of us, and maybe even to all the nations and everyone that we encounter, perhaps it's a reminder that He will not allow His name to be used in vain. <laughs> Put it like this. Every time somebody says something, you're not going to hear God say, I am Jehovah and I approve of this message. God does not make political endorsements. Rather, politics and politicians ought to be endorsing God and mean it when they do. I think that most of us are grateful for this country and we care about our nation. I know that. I've talked to you. We've, we've talked about these things. It's appropriate. It's appropriate to feel that way, and it grieves us. It concerns us when we see scandal and when we see anger. And even if we think, well, you know, that's just politics. There's something different. I was talking to an older man just this week. He's seen a lot of elections. And I asked him the question. I had to say, have you ever... I mean, be honest with me, I said. Have you ever seen it this bad? He says, I can't remember a single time. He said, there was corruption. There was bitterness. There was fighting. But in my lifetime, no. And he said, and it's just so downright disgusting. You may not feel the same way, but that was his perspective. I think that for people who do care about what happens it is annoying and you know the thing that's really heartbreaking is those politics can even ruin relationships in the church that not that should not be for what happens if 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 our allegiance and our political views divide us then what's that saying about where our first allegiance is no matter what your politics and who you vote for your first allegiance is to God, and my first allegiance is to God. And that means that we're brothers and sisters. And God calls me to this supper table just like you. And if I am to say, well, I can't sit at a table with some republocrat, then God's going to say, who are you to be so offended to turn down my invitation to my table? We need to ask ourselves where our first allegiance is. When we see the U.S. flag, we think of the Pledge of Allegiance. It's a noble, it's a good thing to commit ourselves to ideas like unity and liberty and justice. And those ideas come from the mind of God. The flag and the pledge, well, they're not, they're not immutable. They've been changed dozens of times. The last addition to the pledge were the words, under God. And there's cynical versions of why that is. 
But there's also inspiring versions of it. It was finally President Eisenhower who realized there's a higher calling. And to say that the nation is under God is to say that God is over all. And that's a very biblical thought. We respect the authorities on earth. We, we do. That, that's, as, as his disciples, we're called to respect. To respect the authorities, but also to respect those who are not in authority. To respect all people as creatures created in God's image. But let's be as wise as Solomon and understand that all those authorities, no matter what power they have, there's only one power, there's only one authority that can save you, and that's Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of our gospel. You know, when you're baptized, you're not baptized into the church. You're baptized in the name of of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are baptized into Jesus Christ. Because when you're baptized, God is signing off on your salvation. He's putting his name on it. When, uh, when some of you have written checks today for the offering, for your sacrifice. We can't accept that check until you sign off on it. Payments have to be made by this church. and There's agreements that are done and somebody has to sign off on it. And when... And when a bill becomes a law, it has to be signed by someone in authority, and that someone is the President of the United States. It takes authority to sign off on things. Now, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a rumor that we're going to elect a new president in November. It's, uh, it's been in the papers and I think there's something about it on TV right now. And there's some concern that both of the major candidates, and actually even some of the minor candidates, have some serious character flaws, and they are unfit to be the President of the United States, to have that authority we were talking about. I'm talking about it now because we talk about it later, so let's talk about it now. Now, unless something dramatic happens... Bills will be signed into law that will be signed by a president of the United States who will either be named Hillary Rodham Clinton or Donald J. Trump. The fact that authority could be, that, that authority could be given to one of those two, it worries some of us. The fact that it could be given to either one of those worries some of us. But I'm going to ask you this, when that worry comes up, or maybe you notice that worry in your, in your brothers or sisters, where is your first allegiance? Who has the authority to save you, save this nation of people, and save this world? There's no election for that office. It was decided already long ago. And it's the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. One name. One name, but many ways to write it. You can write it as the Lamb that was slain. You can write it as the King over all kings. You can write it as the Lord over all lords, the Emperor over all emperors, the Prime Minister over all prime ministers, and the President over all presidents. 
the authority and the ruler over all, and all then are under God. The only name that can save you and I from sin is the name of Jesus. And here's the good news about it. Not only is he able, he has the authority, he's willing. He's willing to save us. That's the gospel we take to Bulgaria. They have governments that are far more corrupt than anything we've ever seen. And yet they're finding new hope in the fact that they have a, an eternal authority, an eternal ruler who can not only save them here and now, but save them for all eternity. It's impressive to see the Bulgarians in action when they have every reason to be downtrodden, especially when that hope fires up in them because they don't have a lot to be hopeful about in their country. But even more impressive is to see our sisters like Gina and, and Shanna Davis telling a group of women in Bulgaria what God has done for them, and then all of a sudden they realize that there is a name that can save them. The first time I was in Bulgaria, I was teaching some lesson. I was teaching Bible. I thought it was really great. And, you know, I think it was. I think it was a really good lesson. But I, uh, and, and I did make a few mistakes. Uh, I got into the deep waters with Macedonia. And I thought, that'd be neat. You guys are next door to Macedonia. Guess what? Macedonia is in the Bible. And I hear people going, uh, you know. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And I turn to my translator, and he says, don't bring up the Macedonians. There's a, you know, it's just, just, just keep moving. Just keep moving. You live and learn. Meanwhile, Shannon Davis is talking about how God had been gracious to her after her divorce. She's in another class. And the women there are in tears because no one has ever told them that in the name of Jesus Christ, they can be saved and they can be restored. They thought they were eternally condemned because of the sin of divorce. And they heard how God had saved her. Shanna brought that name to them and told them about a name that they can pin their salvation on. And now many of them, they've been baptized and God has signed off on those moments of salvation. As Paul writes in Romans, there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So going back to Solomon's question, will God really dwell on earth? Well, if we think by that that God's going to set up shop in our nation or He's going to dwell in some building or He's going to be contained in some ritual, then the answer is no. Not in that way. God will not dwell on earth. But if we're asking, would He come in the flesh in order to save us and meet us and move closer to us and dwell with us, then the answer to that is is yes. And John 1.14 is an answer to Solomon's question. The Word of God, that saving Word, God's will, it became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory. It's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came and He allowed His name to be signed onto our hearts. The only name, there's a lot of names that can have a lot of authority and 
It may worry you or it may excite you, but there's one name, one name alone that can save you from sin, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. He's not only able, he's willing. Don't have any doubts. He's willing. So I ask you to pledge your life to him, to be baptized into his name. And you know what? If you do that, he's more than willing to sign your salvation into reality. Let's stand up. Let's sing this song. This is a time of encouragement for anybody who lets us know that they need it. 